Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. Morning. If you're ready for the word, put your hands together this morning. All right. We've been in this series, uh, the book of James, for, for quite some time now. And so next week will be our final installment in the series on James. But today we're going to be going to park in James chapter four. So if you have your Bibles with you, James chapter four, um, verses one through ten. James chapter four, verses one through ten. And it says this. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. My sermon title for today is a question. What is the real issue? What is the real issue? A famous Christian apologist and author, C.S. Lewis, um, has a book called Screwtape Letters. And in this book, he describes his character by the name of Senior, Senior Devil. He works for Satan, who would be referred to as the father in this particular story. And so the senior devil who's high in administration with the father, the actual devil, has an understudy. An understudy. His understudy's name is Wormwood. And so the senior senior devil takes Wormwood, the junior demon, under his wings to teach him how to throw Christians off course. And so the enemy in this particular story is not our enemy, but the enemy in this particular story is the enemy of Satan, which would be God. So in this particular book, the enemy, when they say the enemy, they're referring to our God. And so in this dialogue, C.S. Lewis, in this particular story, gives us enlightenment on maybe what the devil or Satan uses to throw us off course. And he says this from an excerpt in this book called The Tape Letters. And this is Senior Devil talking to his understudy, Wormwood. He says this, never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. 
He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy had produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we will always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that which is in its least natural form. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. And so the logic behind what Senior Devil is telling Wormwood is that if you just distort what God put in place, you can throw Christians off track. If you would just distort the way God put things in their original intent, maybe we can deceive these humans and make them think that the pleasure we offer them is the right pleasure and the pleasure that God offers them is the wrong pleasure. And even if we do that, if we just distort it just a little bit, we can throw them off track, we can deceive them, or we can just make them take shortcuts, or if they don't have the patience, we can make them feel unfulfilled inside because they can't have it in the parameters that they want to have it in. And so what the senior devil understands, just like Satan understands, is that all true pleasures are authored by God. Everything that we want to experience, God is okay with that as long as it's in God's parameters. And so in James chapter 3, he talks about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition as the cause for some strife that was about to happen in this church. So much so, he considers bitter jealousy and selfish ambition the pursuit of pleasures that God has put in parameters that are forbidden to us in particular context. uh, James refers to it as unspiritual and downright demonic. And so here's what James had to say about it in chapter 3. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And so I told you this is a picture, a snapshot. The, books of, the book of James is of the early church. And so if we think of the time after Pentecost, when you read the book of Acts, it says this. All the believers were in one heart and mind. And that picture of the church in which they were all in one heart and one mind fades away within the span of a decade. And so these Jewish congregations that James is writing to, they were dealing with a lot of strife. Not only that, there were social class conflicts between the rich and the poor. And so with that being said, there were divisions in this early church. And here's what I love about James's epistle. James epistle doesn't skirt around. He's not theoretical like Paul is, but James has an in your face letter because James thought process is that if I get in your face, then maybe I can eventually get to your heart. And so James holds no punches and he takes no shortcuts when he writes. And so here's what James wants to do. He wants not to get bogged down in the symptoms, but James wants to get down to the root of the issues. And he has an interesting theory on why the church is constantly fighting among themselves. And so here is his theory. He believes that there's so much fighting and so many verbal altercations and so many bad attitudes and constant disagreements for this particular reason. He says, is it not that there's a war raging on the inside of you 
Is it not your appetite for material things and possessions and status and relationships and sensual delights and sexual pleasures? Is it not the search for carnal pleasures that are contrary to the will of God? Or is it that the wonderful things that you know that God has in store for your life and you've anticipated now that those things have not happened yet? It is driving your behavior in a negative manner. And so what happens is when we have internal conflict, it leads to external conflict. And so whenever envy and selfish desires or selfish ambition happens on the inside of us, there's an internal battle that is taking place. But what we don't realize is suddenly they are disrupting the relationships that are on the outside of us. And so when you have a husband and wife in the same household and they have a desire or the wife has a desire to do things and take a vacation and take a trip and get a break. And the husband realizes that the money is not there. What you see is unlimited desires, but limited resources. Frustration. I have the degree and I have the desire, but they won't give me the job. Frustration. I've been waiting a long time. I want to get married, but nobody will marry me. Frustration. I've been broke for a really long time and I need these bills to be paid. I need to set some money aside. I need more money than there is month. But it's not happening. Frustration. And so when selfish and selfish ambition and desires cannot be obtained, the frustrations are typically then directed to the people that are in close proximity. So what James says is that there are passions at war on the inside of you. And what he's really suggesting is that you have a lack of emotional control about yourself. You can't control yourself because there's a war raging on the inside of you. You think something is missing. And so there's an internal battle that nobody on the outside can see because there's a war going on on the inside of you. And what's about to happen is the blood is about to spill out in the streets. Can affect your external relationships. And so it drives you crazy. You can't sleep at night. You toss and turn wondering why things are the way they are. You're wondering when things will end and when things will get better. But can I tell you this? An over pursuit of pleasure is a disruptor of peace. An over-pursuit of pleasure is a disruptor of peace. If you want something bad enough and you obsess over it time and time again and you can't get it out of your mind and you can't find peace anywhere else, that craving, those desires that you have will drive you crazy and disrupt your peace. So the over-pursuit of pleasure also does another thing to the Christian. It impedes our maturity. You don't believe me? I'll let Jesus speak in Luke chapter 8, verse 14. Here's what he says. Luke 8, 14. Here's what Jesus says. The seeds, you come to church. This is somebody who comes to the church and hears the word. The seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message. But all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And so they never grow into maturity. 
And so you can sit in church and hear the word over and over again and go back into the world and nothing changes about your life because the cares of the world and your desire for pleasures take over and crowds out everything that has been spoken and implanted on the inside of you. And so there's this constant war and duality that happens to many of us. And that's why we feel the way we feel, because there's a war going on on the inside. And so what happens is it tends to leak over for Christians into the church. And so selfish pleasure and selfish ambition is the bane of this generation and also the bane of the church. And so what happens is there's this relational war that happens on the outside of us. And so what happens is quarrels when quarrels and fights lead the way sacrifice and mutual understanding have to take a back seat. We can't get along because we're too busy fighting. We forget that we're supposed to sacrifice for one another, be patient with one another, have understanding of one another, but we can't because we have our own desires that are in the forefront. So it goes without saying, and I have to be honest, it goes without saying that the church has served its role by feeding into this, by becoming a purveyor and a teacher of self-centered and pleasure-filled theology. By teaching a Christianity that is used as a means to make my life more enjoyable. So it's not just the world's fault. It's also the church's fault because we've told you that Jesus' desire in life is to make you feel better. That Jesus is only used to make you get what you want to have. That Jesus is here as a genie in a bottle, and as long as you rub it, he'll make all of your dreams come true. That whatever you think in your head, God wants you to have. And we've done a horrible job of perpetuating this cycle of selfishness in this generation of Christians. And so here's what happened. The source of all conflict in the church for the last 2,000 years has been rooted in the overreaching of personal desires. And so the desire to serve the body of Christ and serve my neighbor conflicts with the desire to serve myself. So to be led by your passions is to be led by your own agenda as opposed to be led by being led by God's agenda. And so I need what I want. I think it should be ran this way. And if it's not ran this way, then I'm going to have an attitude with everybody that I encounter. I don't think that they should make this decision. I think they should make that decision because that's what I think is right. And so I can't get on the agenda because that agenda is not the agenda that I feel is right. But do you know when you're a part of the body of Christ, it ain't about you. It ain't about what you want. It ain't about your creature comforts. This church is not your house. You don't rearrange and put furniture where you want to put furniture. This is God's house. And we are on God's agenda. So whatever he says goes. Your little feelings have to take a back seat. I'm sorry that this is not the church that teaches you that you can have whatever you want when you want it. That's not authentic Christianity. When I look through the tapestry of the entire Bible, it is about a people dying to themselves and living for Jesus. And living for Jesus. And so... He says something interesting. You desire and you don't have. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. That's a bit outlandish because you you typically don't see somebody in church 
come in and, and murder their brother or their sister in church. That's not a normal occurrence. We don't get so angry when we don't have what we want that we come in and we actually kill somebody. But, but what he's saying is you don't kill them physically, but you are homicidal in your heart. That, that you don't act it out, but you do feel a certain way about certain people and certain things. And so you think about it and you think about what you would do if you could do if you could if you wouldn't get caught or if there were no consequences and repercussions. And so just because you don't kill somebody physically does not mean you haven't killed them in your heart. And Jesus says both are wrong. So you're not homicidal in actuality, but you have thought some things through in your heart when people have made you mad. And so you covet, you lust for certain things and what other people have. And it's really you set your heart upon things. And so this idea of covet also has this idea of envy. And envy is a bad place to be. Envy is a is a is a bad place to be. And, and we as Christians have a real problem with wanting what other people have. We have a we have a, a bad problem with envy. But let me expose to you what envy really is from a biblical perspective. Envy means I'm glad when someone else experiences misfortune and pain. Envy also means uh, uh, it is not only the desire to have what somebody else has, but you also want to deprive the owner of it. So I don't even want my own. I want yours. I don't want my own car. I want your car. I don't want my own house. I want your house. I don't want my own. I don't want what God has for me. I want what God has for you. And that is envy. And I think that if we feel that way, we should check our hearts because that is a bad place to be. And he says this interesting thing. You envy, you covet, you murder, and you still don't get it. (laughs) You still can't have it. So you can't have it. So what you do is you come in and you create hostility and tension amongst the other people. So I can't have it. But I'm going to make you feel the pain because I got to release this war that's going on the inside of me. And so worse than the fighting, here's what envy says. It comes from a heart that lacks gratitude towards God. It is a failure to seek what God has for you as opposed to seeking someone else's gift or gifts from the world. It is to say, God, I don't really like the blessings that you've given me. Lord, I appreciate you, but I know you can do better than this. Lord, I know you kept me alive, but couldn't you have kept me alive and made me rich? Lord, Lord, I know I got a car, but couldn't you have given me that car? Lord, I know I got a 2006, but (laughs) it's 2017, man. Lord, I got one bedroom. Can't you... Can't you give me three? I mean, I deserve it, don't I? And envy says, I'm just not appreciative of what God has, so I need to go get what somebody else has. And that is a bad place to be. But what all pleasure seekers and most of us fail to realize is that time after time, that when we get what we want, we still don't realize that it still won't satisfy you. 
that even if he gives it to you, it won't satisfy you. Now, let me throw this in here. It's not to say that God doesn't want us to enjoy life, or experience life. The Christian life is a life of joy. Matter of fact, it is, a, it is a life of joy in spite of circumstances. It is being able to walk into a situation that you know you wish was better, but you can still rejoice in what God has done for you and who God is. And so we should be joyous. We should be happy and delightful by, by nature because of what the gospel has done for us. It is not to say that a Christian can't enjoy life or go to a movie or go on a vacation or take a trip or do something eventful. Life can be enjoyed. Matter of fact, here's what the psalmist said in Psalm 37 and 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It's almost as if he's saying you have to actually enjoy God first (laughs) and get on one accord with him. And then he gives you the desires of your heart. It is almost as if to say when you delight in me, I give you the right desires. And then when you get the right desires, you get fulfillment. I want to delight myself in me and then delight myself in God. It's the approach we typically take. And he says, you do not have because you don't ask and you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you want to spend it rolling on your on your passions. I love it when he says you don't have because you do not ask. Because he's really saying as a Christian, you wouldn't ask me for this foolishness anyway, because, you know, I don't want you to have it. So some of the ridiculousness that you have in your head and your heart, you ain't bold enough to ask me for it. You're not that crazy. And so it's almost like he says, if you pray it out loud, you know, you're going to sound ridiculous. <laughs> Lord. I come before you, Lord, humbly. And Lord, I've been working hard, Jesus, it's. It's been a struggle for a mighty long time. And, Lord, you know it takes me a long time to get to work, Lord. So you know that. And so, Lord, I'm just asking, just purely asking because I know you're able, Lord, that you could get me that Maserati that that I saw the other day, God, because you want me to get to work on time, God. And the Maserati will get me there on time. This Honda, Lord, it has limitations to it. And you're the God of no limits, no boundaries. And so, Lord, what I'm asking you is that I could get the Maserati, God. And, Lord, I know that you want to enlarge my territory, God. And so I'm praying, Lord, I'm running out of room in this one-bedroom apartment. So, God, what I'm really praying is that you would increase me, Lord. I think Owlsworth is in my future, Lord. And so, Father, I'm thinking that you want me to have an eight-bedroom mansion, four-car garage, even though I only have one car, for my mansion... In Owlsworth, Lord, and Lord, you know I've been single for a very long time, God, and you know how I feel, Lord, but my heart has been set right, God. I even went and saw some Christian movies about relationships. God, I've been reading Proverbs 31, and I'm a Proverbs 31 kind of woman, God, and so I know, I know, God, I know, Father, that there is a man out there for me, God. And so, Lord, you don't even have to give me my own man. Just give me her man. And Lord, everything will be all right, Jesus. In Jesus' name, I do pray. And the people of God said, Amen.
Exhibit A of why you don't ask for that foolishness. And he says, even if you do get crazy enough to ask me for that, I'm not going to give it to you because you'll spend it on your passions. You'll spend it on your passions. And you know what he says about that when we desire stuff that he has not given us or intended for us? You know what he says about that? He says, you adulterous people. You adulterous people. Do you know, not know that friendship with the world is enmity, hatred with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world is, is an enemy of God. And what he's saying by adulterous people, he's giving them the charge of spiritual adultery. There's spiritual infidelity that is happening in the relationship between Jesus and his people. It is like you love Jesus, but you still run out to other gods. And so he invokes prophetic language in, old, in the Old Testament. And when he ever he talked to Israel, he would call them the adulterous because they were cheating on God, chasing after the goddess of fertility and prosperity. Does it sound like the modern church or what? And so he says, you adulterous you are you adulterous people. You're friends with the world, not even just cordial acquaintances like we think that Facebook friends are actually our real friends. But no, this, this, this is real friendship that he's talking about more than cordial acquaintances. And so the world, what is the world? Friendship with the world, the humanity, the whole system of humanity organized without God. It is all of the structures and institutions that are void of God. He says, you become friends with them. So here's what John says. First, John, chapter two, verses 15 through 17 to make it clear for us. He says this. Don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out love for the father. Practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, has nothing to do with the father. It just isolates you from him. The world and all it's wanting, wanting, wanting is on the way out. He's saying it's temporal. But whoever does what God wants is set for eternity. Friendship with the world. You see, in antiquity... In the old days, true friends share the same mindset, the same outlook on life, the same interests, the same values, the same goals. And so they saw life in the same way. And so when he says you're friends with the world, what he's saying is you think, act just like they do. There's nothing different. You share the same goals that they share. And so when a, purpose, when a person purposely turns to the world They're making a conscious decision to reject God. Let me throw a caveat in here. We should be good neighbors. We should be good co-workers, whether they are a believer or not. You should be friendly to people. It shouldn't be off the basis of whether they are Christian or some other faith. You be good to all people because that's what God has called us to do and what God called us to be. So it's to say not to be to be uh, mean or indifferent to those people. But in the deepest sense of friendship, we cannot be friends with the world because we reject their values. 
And so what happens is when we are friends with the world and we are friends with uh, uh, worldly institutions, here's what happens. Those friendships will ultimately plant seeds in your heart that will give you the same indifference and the same hostilities towards God that they have. And so suddenly what you'll see is a Christian that turns into a practical enemy of God and they don't even know it. And so you're going to put... Nicki Minaj on your gospel album. (laughs) And say you expanding the kingdom. No. You turning your light out and walking slap into darkness on purpose. I want to leave you with this. I'm not done, but I want to leave you with this quote. We cannot be loyal to the culture and to the kingdom. And we live in a time where everybody's doing it for the culture. It's for the culture. It's for the culture. You can't be loyal to the culture and loyal to the kingdom. Pick one. Pick one. Where you going to be? With the church or with the world? Hot, cold, lukewarm. Which one? There is no middle with God. God don't do middle. You either hot or cold. So he's saying the same thing here. And to try to serve both systems is spiritual adultery. (laughs) And what do you think of a wife who leaves her husband and engages in adulterous relationship? What do you think the reaction of the husband will be? Whatever you think the reaction of the husband who truly loves his wife will be, it's the same reaction that God will have. Think about it. A husband is in love with his wife. He's in love with her. And he finds out that she's with another guy. He will be jealous. But rightfully so. And it is the same thing with God. Because God is jealous for his people. God has a zeal and a passion for us that we don't understand. And that passion and that jealousy is heightened whenever it is threatened by somebody else. Who are you talking to? Who you on the phone with? Who you over there texting? Who who pictures you liking? Because he has a jealousy. And that belongs to him. So he's trying to defend it. He doesn't want anybody else to have it. And that's how God is with us. So when he says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, what he's saying is that God yearns for us with a jealousy. We are the brides of Christ, and God does not want us to go to the world to have our needs met. But here's what I love about the Bible. Here's what I love about the gospel, and that's why Jesus is so different than you and I are. Here's what I love about it. Here's the beautiful story of God. Here's the beautiful story that even if you have been unfaithful, even if you have been unfaithful, Yet the Lord, like a good husband, he will woo his unfaithful and faithless wife back instead of insisting on them getting a divorce. And so whenever we've cheated on God and been in spiritual adultery, he still sits there waiting, trying to woo us back into right relationship with us. 
Now you would say if a husband cheats on his wife or wife cheats on her husband, they should leave. There's no questions about it. But God is not like that. It is a love that we cannot comprehend or a love that we can understand. And so whenever we've done something, God is standing there waiting for us to come back in the house. If, if you don't believe me, there's this story in the Bible, a book in the Bible called Hosea. It's about this man being married to this, this woman who can't stop cheating. And so here's what it says in Hosea 3 and 1. Then God ordered me, start all over. Love your wife again. Your wife who's in bed with her latest boyfriend. Your cheating wife. Love her the way I, God, love the Israelite people, even as they flirt and party with every God that takes their fancy. You don't understand how much God loves you. And James, what I love about it is James does more than just diagnose the human problem of spiritual infidelity, he announces that there is a fundamental solution to it. And he gives us one of the most comforting texts in the entire Bible, that even if you messed up and cheated on God, it says this in verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes, opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And what that means is that there is grace on top of grace, on top of grace, on top of grace, and that God has more grace than you have sinned. God's grace is here, but God gives more grace. He doesn't just say God gives grace, but he gives more grace. The more you mess up, the more grace God pours out on your life. It is the idea that there is water flowing from a fountain just rinsing all over you, and you can't stop it from coming. That is the grace of God. And there's only one caveat to receiving this grace. And here's the problem. The caveat is humility. And that is something that goes missing in this generation. Everybody is prideful. And can I tell you this? Pride shuts out grace. Pride says that I am equal and I know just as much as God does. That I am equal with God. And so you can still receive God's common grace. You know, he reigns on the just and the unjust. But there's this other grace, this grace that if you would just posture yourself in humility and say, God, I am sorry. Will you take me back? That God is waiting to receive you back in right relationship with him. No matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've cheated, no matter how many partners you've had, God says, I will receive you back if you would just Humble yourself. Submit yourselves, therefore, to the Lord. And that's the problem. No, no, no submission and no willingness to be humble because to submit means that I have to recognize the authority of somebody else. And so it's a voluntary act that I put myself under somebody else's authority and show them respect and obedience. To submit is not just to sit back and wait for God to issue our orders, but submission means I am going to arrange my life the way you want me to arrange my life and live under the principles that you put in your word. That's real submission. And so really, submission requires us to put and bend our wills to the will of the superior person. And even if that superior person 
issues a directive that seems unpleasant, unwise, but they still insist on it. The test of loyalty and submission to a superior comes only when his will crosses our will. You're not submitted to God when you only submit the way you want to submit. You're not submitted to your employer when you only do what you want to do. You're not submitted to your employer when he says be there at 830 and you show up at nine. You're not really submitted to God when he says my people are gathering at 10. Let me show up. Said that. Somebody said that. I don't know who said that. But we live in a culture that has a problem with submission. And here's the other element, and I'm done. What we don't factor in, but what was prevalent in this story. He says, yes, submit to God. But then he says, resist the devil. Resist, a military metaphor that means to stand against. It's something that you fight it has a suggestion of hand-to-hand combat, right? So what we don't understand is this. The primary element is that we don't understand or oftentimes don't realize, and it can't be understated enough, that there is a real enemy, that there is a real devil, a real satanic force that opposes you and I. And in, our, in the midst of talking about God's blessings and what God wants to do in your life, We undermine what Satan can do to destroy us. And so we don't even realize that some of the stuff that happens to us, some of the battles, is not even about you and I, but it's about a real enemy that you can't see, but you're too blind to realize that he's fighting you. And so instead of fighting the enemy, you you come into the church and you fight the people. And so your mind becomes this battlefield that Satan plays games and tricks on you and puts things in front of you and dangles a carrot in front of you. And he makes you fight and chase things and you see things and you're experiencing things that are in your mind. And then you don't know how to fight it. But can I tell you that there is a real enemy that desires to sift you as wheat, that as long as he can keep you entrapped in a thing, he makes you forfeit your future and God's plans for your life. And God says, all you need to do is wage war against him. You need to get on your knees, draw near to me, start to pray, repent of your ways. But we don't realize that when we submit unto God's authority, that is the way we resist temptation and we resist the devil. But many of us are not submitted, therefore we can't resist. Because you can't beat Satan in your own power. He's stronger than you are. It is a real enemy. And we don't even mention him. We don't even mention him. And so your dissatisfaction, your longing for pleasure and pleasure and instant gratification ain't even about you. But could it be that Satan has distorted what God wants for you and made it and repackaged it? And he makes you follow after something else. And God is like, look, here are my parameters. If you do it in my parameters, You'll get so much more joy and pleasure than you ever got from doing it the wrong way. But Satan is like, nope, Wormwood. We got to trick them. We got to throw them off. We got to make them think if they just do it this way, then nobody ever know it. That, that, that God won't mind. So let's just keep them stuck here in this particular situation, in this cycle, over and over and over and over and over again. And we can make them forfeit destiny and they can never become who God called them to be. 
And I wonder, how many of us are stuck in that cycle? He says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Wash your hands. Purify your hearts. In essence, what he's saying is clean up your actions and clean up your deeds. Get your life together. Get your life in order. Draw near to God. Come to me in repentance. Why does he mention mourning and wailing? Because when you truly repent and you're sorry for your sins, you mourn over it. Why do you mourn? Because whenever a Christian repents, that means something on the inside has died. And not enough of us have taken our internal desires to the funeral home. But I want to suggest with you today, I want to plead with you today that you need to pronounce a funeral today over some things in your life. You don't need to speak life or give it life anymore. Actually, you need to call it death. Today you are dead to me. Today you will die. I am taking you to the cross and leaving you there. You can't walk out of this church with me. You are not allowed to go back in my life. You are dead. And I don't know what you need to kill today. But I want to encourage you that whatever you kill, God will give that back to you ten times over. That what God has for you is far greater than what you have right now. But whatever your struggle, your issue, your thing is, you need to call it to the carpet and let it die. Let it die. Can you imagine what God would do to your life if you would just submit to the will of God? Don't die to your passions and the war that is waging on the inside of you. To repent means I have to be humble. But there's no greater sign of humility than Jesus. And this is my last scripture, and we're out of here. He said this, Paul said this when he wrote the letter to the Philippians about Jesus. Jesus lived this humility out. If anybody was entitled or had a right to whatever they wanted, it was Jesus. But here's what it says about Jesus. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above all names. Can I suggest to you that the way up is down? That if you want God to exalt your life, then you got to get down. Stop taking it out on people. What's the real issue? We hope you were blessed by the message today and would love to hear about how God is using this ministry in your life. You can connect with us online at outpouringorlando.com to share your story, request prayer, give financial support, or learn more about our ministry. We'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services if you're ever in the Orlando area. Thanks again for joining us today. Have a wonderful week.